Hello and welcome to episode number 364 of the Armin Show podcast in person. These are the coolest ones. We have an author. We have a professor. We're at the University of California, Irvine. We have Professor Nicole Ituriaga. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very glad to be here. These are the coolest moments of existence. <laughs> You're an author, professor at the institution we are currently in, UC Irvine. I haven't been here for many, many years since my friend Alan was here doing computer science. Oh, cool. Tell us before we get into the content of the book and the story behind it, what brought you to here currently, where you are, why this institution, and why the category that you study and profess? Um, well, I came to UCI, I started last year, um, mostly by, so I'm not going to say pure luck, <laughs> but because um, the academic job market is intense and you're often at the whim of where you end up. So like if you just apply to jobs and you just... You're there everywhere. Yeah. And that's like, I think a big criticism of academia actually is that you often don't get to pick where you live. And so I feel like I hit a major jackpot in getting to... I'm from Southern California, getting to come home to Southern California. My family is here. It's just like a dream job. So I'm really happy to be an anteater. Like zot, zot, zot. That's what they say here. Zots. It's like they're supposed to be an anteater. Zot, zot, zot. We're eating ants. <laughs> eating ants. Great. <laughs> yeah. Take that, ants of the world. So, yeah. So, and that's why I ended up here and in criminology, law, and society, though I have all of my degrees in sociology. Um, I was at the Max Planck Institute in Germany for my postdoc before that. So a big, big distance away from Southern California, then I got to come home. So um, that's why I'm here. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> the Max Planck Institute. I've known a couple of people who... That's the one in Göttingen, mm -hmm. Germany? Yes. Tell us about that. Um, well, it was, uh, it's, an, it's a research institute. There's um, MPIs, that's the little shorthand for it, all over Germany. And there's a few in the Netherlands. Um, they basically just pay you to research and write. And it's a great job. And I had really a wonderful community of fellow researchers. I learned there that I am not a small town person. You're not a small town person. I'm not a small town person. So that was a bit of an adjustment being in small town, sort of rural Germany and about two hours away from anything. Did it feel limiting? What happens when a not small town person is in a small town? You do a lot of work. You get a lot <laughs> yeah, of work I got done. a lot of work done. <laughs> so um, the amazing efficiency can be when a large town person goes to a small town. Yeah. So for me anyway, and I also, um, yeah, I got a lot of work done and I did a lot of soul searching there. I was in a big transition period anyway. So it was, um, it was good. Sort of a peregrination into the desert, if you will. Just me and myself. <laughs> can you explain for the people who are not me, just somebody else, what is peregrination? I'm sort of like, you know, Jesus went into the desert. You know, to battle himself and the devil or whatever in the Bible. Um, my dad likes to say that everybody needs to have a peregrination moment in their life where they have to figure out who they are, what they want to be, and they usually have to do it alone. Um, and so that was sort of my moment, if you will. That's a key thing. Figure yourself out in some way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can't be done with external variables affecting you. No. No. You have to do it on your own, and it's hard, and it's usually really lonely, but you... You either get through it or you don't. <laughs> you got through it. You're like the yeah. road from Walden Pond. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's cool. It was, it, was, it was hard. I'm not going to say it wasn't hard. It was hard. And winters for someone who's from Southern California going into a place with winter and seasons and Germany has a lot of darkness in the winter months was really hard. Um, yeah, I, I didn't like it. Was there days of sullen nature and melancholy? Oh, a lot. Right. Yeah. 
because the sun is not kicking in. There's no sun, or you've got like a couple hours of very filtered, sad light. Like, <laughs> you know, like I, it really dawned on me, like, oh, nihilism came from Germany for a reason. That's where it's from. Yeah, yeah. And it, it makes a lot of sense. That's funny. It's not even light. It's sad light. It's very sad. Yeah, because it's like, so here, I mean, looking outside just right now, you just get this ton of like really intense light. Uh-huh. Whereas the winter light in Germany is like soft, filtered light. And then and you only get a couple hours of it. It's just not enough. It's not enough. <laughs> it's not enough. And that's why all, I mean, like it's winter. It's not supposed to be, it's just darkness in a way that I was not accustomed to. I think if I had stayed there longer, maybe I would have gotten one of those lamps that people get. The lamps um, should do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like the sad lamp. But <laughs> <laughs> The light is sad light. The lamp is sad lamp. Yeah. That's funny. It's almost like you want to double the intensity of the light and then double the time it's there. At least. Yeah. It, yeah. And I think, you know, with, I mean, it was, I mean, I'll say that aside, like being in Germany was very good for me and I'm glad that I did it. It was an important moment in my life. I was able to finish this book and that was, <laughs> and that was really, yeah, it was really monumental in that way. The tough moments, I always tie into them. It's very important to me, challenge in life, difficulty, the tough times. I almost think the other times are not so relevant in our existence, but people usually like them, you know, more comfortable and such. Yeah. But those tough times, you figure yourself out, you make those decisions you needed to make. There's a sense of urgency. You kick into your human instinct or human nature uh, in a way that you don't when you're relaxing on the you know, theoretical beach. Yeah. I, I do think times of challenge are where we grow the most and growing is not usually pleasant. <laughs> growing pains, right? I mean, it's not even when you're literally growing, it can right. hurt. So I think, yeah, like big moments of change. My mom is a therapist and she calls. So my dad has the peregrination analogy. And my mom, my mom has a Tarzan moment analogy where you're on a vine and you don't know where you're going to land. So you're like flying through the jungle and you're like, I'm going somewhere. <laughs> but where that vine drops me, I don't know yet. So it's like two. And that was it's also a very similar experience. I have a related point with your mom's <laughs> category there that I've thought about the interesting part of life is when, let's say you're swinging from a branch to a branch or a vine to a vine, the space in between to me is the interesting part. Yeah. Because the other part, oh, comfortable. Oh, now I'm comfortable again. But between there, you're like, am I going to get there? Will I? I? That's the cool part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's super cool. And I also think it can be really scary and you don't know where you're going to land. I mean, like, so my time in Germany, it's a, was a contract job. So after three years, I was like, I don't know where I'm going to have a job. Am I going to stay in Europe? Am I come? Am I going to end up in Du Bois? You know, like, where do I go? And is that something I'm willing to do anymore? You know, like, this is a big conversation in academia of do I want to keep moving all the time? Do I want to keep rebuilding community? Do I want to do this? Or do I want to go be where my people are? And luckily, the universe opened doors for me in a way that allowed me to come home um, and stay home. But, uh, for many, I think, and I was really at my, that was in my mind, the last time I was going to do the academic job market was 2020. I was like, this is it. Either it works or I'm Peace going. out. Yeah. But why? But so it went the way that it did. Doors open. Doors open. Yeah. I have to go on to that one. When doors open, is it always because you envisioned that possibly a door could open? Is it fair to say that's connected? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it was also like I, I shot my shot and it could have not gone that way. But if I hadn't, it's like what you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So I, I took my shot and went, this is what I'm doing. 
and either we'll see what happens from there. I'm of a, a big believer in not crossing bridges until they're an actual bridge. So it would be like, well, I will try this. And if that doesn't go that way, we'll make decisions when we get there. But I got invited to give a job talk at UCI. This is middle of pandemic, like end of 2020. Interesting time to give a job talk. All online. No one knew. Like, so it was like, normally they woo you. They fly you out. You know, this was completely Leave Zoom. Yeah. And it's just 100% Zoom one day. Oh. You know, so instead, those things normally go across two, three days. This was eight hours. Package deal. And then, like, and then not hearing anything for a while. And then, you know, the year ended and hearing later, months later, and just being like, oh, wow, <laughs> now what? <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it all went slow and fast, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, some parts of life now are also, yeah, very fast and slow. There's parts where, like, you get a lot done, and then there's a big blank space, and then it's back to that. But it links back because humans have a warm nature and things connect back. Yeah, yeah. Things were really moving in a direction that I was like, okay, I I want to be – I was making decisions for myself, I think, in a way that I hadn't previously. So it, it the universe unfolded and I trusted that and I followed the path that opened up in front of me. But I was also making for myself, but I think, you know, these things are always – you never know how things are going to go. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. On the idea of shooting the shoot, as you described, I changed the word, but I always do it because if the person is inclined, great, sure. And if they're not inclined, that's on them. They can hold it for the next 50 years. Absolutely. Because if you're actually going in a great direction, then like eight years later, they look back like, oh man, shoot, they shoot their shoot. So they're not talking to me right now. I know why, because I wasn't participating. Yeah, I know. I think like knowing what's yours and knowing what's not yours is like a really important part of that equation. (laughs) And then being like, okay, you didn't want to do this thing with me. That's okay. Anyway. Peace be with you. Yeah. Off I go. (laughs) Right. Yeah. One athlete guy was like, I I wish them nothing but the best. That's what he would say to people after things like that. That's great. Yeah. I mean, honestly, this um, project, I emailed the association when I was looking for people to work with doing my dissertation field work of like a cold email. So speaking and, of that. And that's how I ended up doing this project. You sent they a cold said, email. Yeah. yeah. And I said, I'm looking for someone to, you know, do a field site with for my dissertation. Could I volunteer alongside you and, you know, do this dissertation? And they said, sure, come on in. But I mean, they could have just said no, or they could have not written back at all. Right. A lot of people don't write back when you're looking for people to interview or as I'm sure you know. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. <laughs> Less uh, over time as you build a thing. But yes, yeah. Sometimes you get nothing, or uh, you know, some response that's not participatory. But that's fine. Yeah, and I always tell my students like it's worth sending an email, just in case, because you never know. Someone might say yes. I just want to point out indirectly, my fellow people, <laughs> if not for certain emails, would this moment even exist? <laughs> no, it wouldn't. <laughs> These are super cool to myself. Maybe a, a person who has some cooking interest, they have a super cool moment. Somebody else. But you can't get there without a reach out of some form. Agreed. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, what could it be? <laughs> you like, never know. Right. You send the cold email. Dissertation in force. I announced that here. Exhuming violent histories. Forensic memory and rewriting Spain's past. I learned some great things about Spain I hadn't known. A lot of people visit Spain. It's super popular to have gone there. Yes. Currently... I know people that went to the Canary Islands, mm-hmm. somebody who's currently in Formentera on their vacation right now, and somebody who visited the mainland like two months ago 
Yeah, it's, it's popular. It's beautiful. Right? Great food, great drink. I mean, everything's in Spain. It's known for a lot of that. Yep. But before all the great drinks and whatnot, was a violent history of sorts. <laughs> there was a Franco regime and things happened. Before we get to that, what are we looking at in this book and how does it relate to what happened with Spain? Um, so the book is really looking at how human rights activists are using things like forensic science, exhumations, DNA testing, to challenge how we remember instances of state terror. Um, and we use I use Spain as a case study of how that can be done. So with Spain's history of there was a civil war for three years, followed by an almost 40-year dictatorship um, of a pretty a violent authoritarian regime that, that held its authority through terror. Um, so through that, there are a lot of mass graves. And as well as the framing from the, the government, they're being like, these were evil people. They deserve to die and they deserve to stay in ditches and to be remembered with disdain. So... You know, fast forward to there's still like hundreds of thousands of families who have missing people who are in mass graves wanting their family members back. Uh, this movement of forensics-based human rights comes along in the year 2000 to Spain and it blows up this whole past and how people look at it, how they remember these people who are in the graves, how they understand what happened to them. A lot of the, the violence wasn't known. The thing about bones is they really... They really tell a story of someone's life. You can know a lot just by looking at bones. Um, so like instances of torture that maybe weren't known or as well known, um, the body will tell you what it's been through. Um, so things like that um, have come out um, in other places like in Argentina where this originated. This is how people found out that children had been stolen and illegally adopted out by the regime. So this is how like science can really challenge what governments are saying happened. And so that's really the, the focus of the book is what does that look like in Spain, considering how long ago that violence was, as opposed to more current cases like Bosnia or even Syria, or I know they're doing forensic examinations in Ukraine, ongoing or relatively recent past histories. This is a much older history of violence since the, the war ended in 1939. Right. <laughs> um, so, but it's, uh, so it's really, it's focused on that and what that means for justice in cases of violence that are so old, um, and for the families and just Spain in general. So that's sort of the book. That's a great description of the book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I liked it when I was reading it. I got a lot of feelings of how people could... It's almost like through what is described here. At first, it seems like it's distant from what occurred. But then as you get into the descriptions you bring up, you think to yourself, oh... This can be a healing thing for that individual because now it's on our terms versus the terms that were set by people many years ago that weren't for my ancestors in some way. And the the key thing that stood out to me so heavily from the book is on page 74. <laughs> very interesting one. And I go to that straightforward because it's very punchy emotionally to me is when person um, finds out uh, or they uh, responded to another individual. Don't want to butcher it here, but they responded to another individual that uh, normally they would have had their head down uh -huh. if they were interacting with them, but now they were basically defending their past and would allow them to keep their head up in a way. Can you speak on that description 
because it speaks to self-esteem a lot for me. Yeah. So the thing about the dictatorship is, is they really punished the defeated, the, the, the side that fought for democracy were extremely, extremely punished. So their businesses were seized, their property was seized. If they were, I mean, a lot of them were executed or forced into labor, but they weren't allowed to travel. They weren't allowed to have certain jobs. Some of them, you know, their children weren't allowed vaccines. They were treated as second-class citizens and were horribly stigmatized. You know, they're called reds, you know, things like that. And so the example that you're mentioning is this woman who came from a village where, um, you know, her family was known as like reds and they were really awfully treated. And there was an, there's an ongoing exhumation that another woman from her village shows up to and is, you know, yelling and saying like, oh, these people are shit. Why are you removing them? And one of the, the association volunteers stands up for them and says like, no, this is about human rights. This is about recovering people for their families. Like, you know, she does sort of take a sort of depoliticized thing like politics aside. There's still people right. who deserve to be treated with dignity and that if she can't keep herself more composed, she has to leave. And just having someone stand up for the victims, for this other woman, she was able to, I think, realize that it was safe. You know, and I think that's like, it maybe sounds silly considering how long ago this was, but if you've been constantly terrorized that at any moment they can kill you or kill your family again, you know, that they'll come for you, you're going to be scared. And I think like, especially if you're in like a small village, again, I, this, I think it's hard to understand if you're not from there or you've like not experienced close hand state terror or what the effects of that can do intergenerationally. But like the very simple movement of another person saying like, I'm not going to let you talk that way really changed this woman's life. I mean, she really, she started talking to international journalists. She was involved, you know, and she never, as far as I know, did that sort of cowering to the, you know, really loud <laughs> sort of fascist people again, because she had, she didn't, I think there was something about that, just like spell being broken. It was just gone. And she was able to, to see that nothing was going to happen, you know, cause like, I, th I think a lot of bullies and this is sort of almost minimizing how intense this is, but like bullies don't do well to being stood up to. And right. then, you know, that sort of b breaks the magic spell of a bully is like, oh, you're just a person. <laughs> You're just a person and you can't actually do anything anymore. The systems have changed enough to where you can't hurt these other people. Maybe with your words, you can still be a jerk, but like this woman isn't going to kowtow to you anymore because you don't like her family's politics. <laughs> you know, it's not like, direct. yeah, it's very like, and it's gross. It's, it's, I mean, I think we see this all the time in many different places in our lives where someone has a sense of power over you and can be abusive with it. But if you find a way to undermine like that sense of power or you don't give it to them anymore, you don't have to live like that. <laughs> and that that's easier said than done, but I think that's what happened in that case. It is quite difficult. I've always said that fear from someone else can only attach to you if you have fear on yourself for it to attach to like like velcro kind of yeah absolutely so if you don't give it any weight or room to cling on to you or let's say a power uh, dynamic then it starts to break down and then they are like confused almost like oh absolutely yeah i think that's exactly what happened this woman huffed off after she was told like you can't behave like this anymore right. i was getting this great deal before 
What yeah. happened to my great deal? It's a great deal to be a person in power. Right. <laughs> it's not great if all of a sudden it doesn't work anymore. I was getting free stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I have an analogy like if you go to the store and the lemons one day are 39 cents, mm-hmm. just one day, and then they go back to like 89 cents, you'll always be like, I remember when they had 39 cents and I was getting a great deal and such. Yeah. You know, like be always annoyed with them, even though 90% of the time it was 89 cents. Yeah, absolutely. Got spoiled. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm. Spoiled on poison fruit there in this case. But yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's poison fruit. Interesting. And self-esteem is a big connection. I always look at self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And so it makes a big difference when your past or the re- reframing of it or your control of it is restructured. Now your self-esteem can blossom. Whereas before there was always this thing on top of you that you're like, I can't move. Yeah. 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 And if you think about that thing being on top of you coming from every side, like the government or right. school or how like everything you're taught is that you're bad or your family's bad. You know, that's a lot. It's a lot to carry. Or like, hey, your grandfather is in a ditch on the side of the road, you know, like, and people remind you of that constantly. Or like you yourself experience violence, you know, like that's a very heavy load to carry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a reminder. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but I thought of uh, Kobe Bryant's wife was talking about how the pictures got leaked of yeah. the crash and she didn't want to see it. and was worried about it being seen for the next 20, 30 years or whatever. Kind of yeah. related. Yeah, no, it's awful. You wouldn't want that reminder. No, and I, I think also like there's something about bodies that are, that's a very vulnerable, you know, like some someone you love's body being on display for others in a very vulnerable state. Like, I don't think anyone would want that for themselves or their loved ones. Right. Yeah. I feel for that family. That's awful. There's a lot of presence in a person and we give them credit while they're alive and it's, it'll be odd after they're alive and it's not really cool to disregard them as oh and you mentioned that also about how like continuing the i guess respect towards a person afterward is a big deal because some of them they basically treated them like nothing afterward when they threw them in the ground Mm -hmm. and then to maybe dig them up and place them in a nice way or to do it on their terms is now like okay our past now has respect again absolutely it's also like do you want the murderers to decide how your like your person is buried <laughs> right you know like there's there's that simple like satisfaction of like you don't get to be the ultimate decider on how someone is buried but also like yeah it's a huge victory for these families to because these most of these bodies were intentionally buried with disrespect they were buried face down they were buried outside of a church like because you know it's a very catholic country so not being on consecrated ground was like the point <laughs> the point was to be disrespectful <laughs> other than just taking a life it was like and we're gonna be um we're gonna do what we can to make the body also suffer and the families right like so to be able to find them rebury them with care and dignity is a huge win for these families for many reasons i noticed that in the book there's like numerous examples of times where they did things beyond what would have been even not that it was necessary, but beyond the base of the murder or the disrespecting of the individuals, they would add another layer. They would mm-hmm. do this thing. You have to die like this or you have to walk through the city not looking great mm-hmm. in a damaged way just to make the point. And when I think about that kind of thing, it makes me think of and there's a bit of weakness underneath that. If you have to make that point, why do you have to make that point? Like You must not have a great point. Well, I think it's like, how can I scare the living the most, you know? 
it's by humiliating walking ghosts, if you will, you know, if they're if you're being paraded through a street before you die, you know, like all of that is humiliation and it's meant to terrorize those who are left behind, you know, like get in line, capitulate or you'll experience this yourself, you know, and that's how you terrorize people into compliance. Mm-hmm. Some sort of subjugation type of thing. Absolutely. I mean, in the immediate post-war um, period, Franco is killing thousands i mean thousands of people in mass you know so it's like that's also a really great way of terrifying people into compliance like i'll kill a whole bunch of people you want to fight me Mm -hmm. like no you probably don't especially after a three-year civil war that's brutal uh, you've lost people there's no food you know like you at a certain point most people just want to live their lives and they will they'll deal with repression up to a point I'll say, <laughs> in my experience of studying dictatorships, right. you can only go so far <laughs> right. for so long. And like, I'll say that's uh, sort of the brilliance of Franco's. He eased off. If he had kept killing people like that, there probably would have been a rebellion. You know, like ISIS went too far. They were too brutal. They got overthrown. You know, like dictators have to walk this very fine line of terrorizing people enough so that they don't rebel, but not going so far into terrorizing people that they go, I don't have anything left to lose. So fuck it <laughs> you know like i will fight you till i die because i'm gonna die anyway right you know so there's this there's a balance in how much state terror will how long you can do that it's kind of like a virus affecting an organism uh or a host it can only go so far because if it immediately immediately kills off organisms boom you have nobody else to work with and exactly pass on your yeah material so you have to sort of take advantage of them but keep them alive Yes, and keep enough people on your side. You know, so if you're killing everybody, it doesn't really matter. But if you have some people who are doing really, really well and then a very small few that are not, you know, that's also another way to keep the, the organism, if you will, functioning. Yeah, and, and like stability, authoritarianism. I think the thing I've heard the, the most in places where there are dictatorships is, yeah, it was bad, but, you know, you could leave your house unlocked, you know? You, there wasn't, no one was robbed, you know? There weren't drugs. Yeah, people were getting tortured down the street, but like at least you could leave your house unlocked, you know. So there's like a, it's a weird balancing of what <laughs> what's <laughs> life like. It usually does have reminds me. I always have these things that reminds me of Jay Z would talk about when he grew up. They would have shootings, but at the same time, like a couple of days later, they'd be having like water fights in the street and just people playing around, and it was like a mix of both. But the main thing from from both of these is that always in the background is this potential of uh terrible things yeah versus in a good area maybe there's a lot of things going on but there's no random like we expect this to occur right exactly so it's more comfortable in a way yeah yeah, yeah exactly why did um franco do what he did and can you tell us about his whole history until his end so he was a general um and he was pretty far right like he was known for putting down i believe like um a group of miners that were trying to unionize. So he was always very conservative. He's extremely Catholic. He's from the Galician region of uh, like so the northern part of Spain, kind of near Portugal. Um, so Spain wasn't like very stable. I mean, they had a monarchy and they had like sort of a parliamentary thing, but they were mostly feudal, like in terms of how the European continent looked like in the 30s. And then he, the king was sort of run off and they decided to become a democratic republic. In 1936, they voted in the Second Republic. And this is like a a very big shift than the rest of continental Europe, which is headed straight into fascism. There's Mussolini, there's Hitler. All those people are like very much in power and doing 
lots of things. <laughs> and all of a sudden in Spain, you have this total turn to the left. The sort of progressive government comes into power. They start making changes. They move generals around like Franco because they don't want a coup. They are aware that this, there's a history of military takeover. So they're trying to keep them away from the capital so that they, they don't, you know, can't do this. The problem with that strategy is they're so far away, like Franco is in what's, I mean, there's some problems with this term, but like colonial Morocco, <laughs> like Spanish, there's a territory in Morocco that's controlled by Spain, but it's definitely um, colonial. So they've occupied a part of Morocco. So that's where they sent Franco. So he's on the African continent, but that gives him all this space to make these plans with these other generals who are like, this can't happen. Um, and the way they see this leftist government, and it's very much um, couched in um, previous Spanish lore of like, they were occupied by the Moors for three to 300 years, and then they retook Spain, the La Franquista, you know, so like... <laughs> Um, that's how they see this. They see leftism, progressivism as an invading foreign force that is ruining the character of Spain. And the only thing that they can do to save it is to violently overthrow it. Um, and they do that. And so July 1936, there's a the coup um, that's actually not led by Franco at this point. It's led by, it's sort of like a junta, like a group of generals. And they come in from the north and the south. And so he's coming in with Moroccan forces through the, the southern part Lots of places like Galicia, his home area, uh, fell immediately. Like they immediately go over to their side. I um, mean, we also see a splitting of the military. So it's not like in the U.S. where our military is like really combined. Like they're all together, our armed forces. Other countries' military are kind of like separate. So the Marines or the Army, the Air Force, the Navy are not so well connected like like we have that like yeah. this was the thing i always struggled with with understanding these kinds of overtakes was like how did this happen <laughs> because they're separate they're like very separate so the air force right exactly so the air force and the navy stay with the democracy and the army unlike the version of the marines go with like the state police also go with the the coup so you have a, a fracturing of military forces and the reason that's important is because eventually Franco does become head of this movement to overthrow the democracy, but he doesn't have an air force or a navy. So he's like, hey, <laughs> I know people who have these who believe like I do, and it happened to be Hitler and Mussolini, who offer up to give them their navy and air force. Hitler uses this as a way to test out like 27 different kind of aircraft, different airplane maneuvers. This is how, I mean, like, it is a war laboratory for Hitler, who when the second the Spanish Civil War is over, invades Poland. <laughs> and he uses all of the things that they learned how to do in Spain on Europe. And like, you would think, you know, I guess hindsight 2020, but like, I don't know, maybe just see what he's doing in another <laughs> country and go, huh, why do you need to know any? Or like, what are you doing with all these new planes? Right. And Mussolini gives this, um, the Navy and some of army. And so like all of a sudden this, you know, opposing force has a really good army. Um, and even still, the Republic holds on for three years and they're getting very limited. So we're still in the time of isolationism. So the UK, the US not involved. The Soviet Union jumps in, but sends them like old rifles, things they can't use. And it's a mess. Yeah, but this is from 1920. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like there's a lot. I mean, like, if you want to read like a fictionalized account, um, Farewell to Arms by Hemingway does a really good job of accounting like how sort of so much infighting and 
bad help from the Soviets. Uh, but you also see the international brigades like George Orwell from the UK joins in this fighting. You know, there's a lot of romanticism around the Civil War of like this fight against fascism and everyone's joining together. Um, you know, like Ukraine, you kind of see that right now where they're calling for foreign fighters to yes. come join, fight for democracy in Ukraine. It's a very similar idea. So instead of people going online and being like, come fight for Ukraine, you have people going like, come fight for Spain, come join the brigades. Like a ton of Americans go, they're in the Lincoln brigades, they're fighting. But again, you, they're under they're undergunned and they're outmanned, but they still maintain for three years. Franco, eventually his forces win. He's extremely Catholic. I think that's important to know because that's basically what he turns um, his regime into is this sort of like Catholic, Catholic totalitarian regime, you know, masses mandated everyone has to go to church the catholic church is also really really involved in a lot of the violence like there's a story in my book about a priest yeah, who <laughs> helps execute people with the second shot right. and he puts a second bullet in people's heads you don't forget these things by the way these things when you read them yeah like, uh. Uh, yeah it's it's really upsetting and like the catholic church was really awful in in their role in this and of course they were also really involved in the violence and the regime in argentina um so like there's some um, history there. <laughs> and so, like, he's really Catholic. He takes over. He, you know, bans women's education. Same, you know, like, education is now um, sex segregated. Women are supposed to be learning how to be homemakers, men, these rural fighters. And then eventually sort of, like, lays off that a little bit. With time, he sort of relaxes. But it's like, you know, the priests take role, like, who's in attendance at mass. You know, you could get in trouble, maybe lose your life if you didn't go. Um, it's, it's a lot. John's not here. <laughs> yeah. Like, John's not here. Yeah, where, where are you? <laughs> yeah. And that may be, and that's really, really intense. And so he also calls himself Clolio, which is sort of like a very old school title that's like above. It's something they used to use for kings. So it's like God's right hand man kind of person. So he really elevates himself into sort of a godlike, um, figure, really Catholic, um, he then maintains this regime through a lot of terror and like scaring people get into the 60s. So the other thing is that Spain is super closed off. Like you're not allowed to leave. It's kind of how we look at um, communist countries now, like in Cuba, you're not allowed to leave if you're Cuban unless you get a permission slip and then you have to come back. The same thing with Spain. It was completely closed off until the early 60s, mid 60s, maybe it starts to open up. Things start to get a little more relaxed. We get into the 70s. He has a successor who he's chosen, uh, Carrillo Blanco, who like in 1973, I think, becomes the dark joke is he becomes Spain's first astronaut because ETA, the Basque separatist group, put a giant car bomb under his car and his car flew over a wall. <laughs> Hence the first astronaut. He went flying. Flying. And he died. <laughs> so all of a sudden there's no successor. Franco is... Um, older, he's not doing well, he dies in 1975. And now there's no one to take over because the uh, successor was assassinated. And that's how you get to the transition. But, you know, Franco, when he dies, had like four masses, funeral masses. He's paraded through the streets like an emperor. You can look up his uh, funeral. It's uh, There's videos of it on YouTube. I mean, he's in like a chariot. There are people on horseback. It is grand. And then he gets buried up in the Valle de los Caídos, which is the Valley of the Fallen, which is this massive monument. I looked it up. Yeah, it's it's big. <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> you see it and you're like, I saw it on Google Maps and looked at images inside of it. And then knowing what occurred and what was underneath there, 
It's like a cold thing. It's not that far from Madrid. No, it's right outside Madrid. It's like built into uh, a mountain. It's got a 150 meter cross on top of it. Huge. It's huge. It's huge. And like very scary. And it's very like fascist artworky. Like all of the, the statues, there's a La Pieta out in front that's also very big. And it's jarring because it's like there's sharp edges. Like it's not, when I think of La Pieta, I think of the Michelangelo. It's super soft. It's marble. It's beautiful. This is like just jagged and like uh. <laughs> you go into a cave and it's like the scary walk into darkness and there are these like really scary statues along the ceiling and it's just really intense and it's also a mausoleum for i think thirty thousand people who died in the civil war they also have um victims of franco buried there because at some point he decided everyone should be buried there for a long time you could only be buried there if you had died on fighting for him but then they went and dug up a bunch of victims and buried them there without telling anyone. So when they started doing exhumations, they were all of a sudden finding empty graves. And like clear signs that people had been there, had been buried there, but were missing. And then through military records found that they had been exhumed by the Franco regime and moved to the Valley of the Fallen. Obviously, that's very upsetting for victims' families. There's a movement to have them exhumed out of the Valley of the Fallen. We'll see if that's possible. I... The argument from the state is like the remains got commingled and they're in bad conditions because a lot of water in there. So we'll see. But like, I don't think they should be there, especially if the families don't want them there. <laughs> um, I don't think I would want my family member there if they died that way. Right. Because they might be buried next to someone who killed them. And that seems, again, I think families should decide what happens to their loved ones. Not <laughs> not randos yeah especially like it's not like they told anyone that they were doing this in the 50s you know like they just did it right and then like didn't tell anyone <laughs> there's no warm natured communication there. no and so franco stayed in the valley of the fallen until 2019 when he was exhumed by the socialist government and moved to the private cemetery el prado which is where um his family is buried like his wife is there and it was set up to be this like you know, oh my God, like you can't move Franco. Like, and they did it and it was fine. Nothing happened. I was there. I was in Madrid when this happened. You were there. I was there. I was there and I was trying, I was trying so hard to get up there to see it, but they, they blocked off all the roads. They let in some journalists and a few diehard fans made it along the road, but they flew him out from the Valley of the Fallen to the other cemetery in a helicopter and reburied him. But I did go that weekend after and like went to go see you know, the people who were leaving flowers and to chat with them a little bit to see why they were there, why they why they needed to come out that weekend <laughs> to see Franco. It's nice to actually be there in the moment. It was, yeah. It was really um, fortuitous that I happened to be in Madrid when that happened. It's also kind of crazy to have that, like, not that far from the city and kind of feel that occurred. And it's still there. It's like a structure that's immovable. Yeah, it's a really interesting place. Um, I would say if people are interested in visiting that, and if they speak Spanish, to go for a mass just to see what the, the other side is saying. You know, like the, the more Franco-apologist side. It's definitely one of the more uh, conservative masses, <laughs> to put it nicely, um, I've ever been to. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, I, I mean, it was, I went with a group of like collective memory scholars from a conference that was there. We were taken on a guided thing and it was, it was very interesting. So um, I would say like, check it out. It was built by slave labor. And like, as long as you know the context of this, I don't think there's anything wrong 
with visiting places like this as long as you are aware of what you're getting into and what it is. If you were able to put it into a statement, what is one thing you would want individuals to take from exhuming violent histories for their understanding of either people or what happened in Spain? I would say what I'd want people to take away from the book is, well, two things. One, that science, forensic science, offers this really amazing opportunity to have a better understanding of what happened in instances of state violence, um, but also that that these families deserve, they deserve the right to access to these sciences and they deserve the right to the access of these kinds of justice, especially if they live in a place like Spain where they have amnesty laws and they'll never see legal, like, <laughs> they'll never see anybody go to jail. But the least anyone can do is to remember that their loved ones existed and that they their lives were had meaning. <laughs> And that they, you know, yeah, that these families' pain deserves to be acknowledged. And I think, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter that it happened 80 years ago. <laughs> it's still very real to the family members. And I think, you know, if we take that sort of idea and apply it to the United States, um, we have a long history of racial terrorism <laughs> and white supremacy, like pretending it didn't happen, not acknowledging it doesn't mean it didn't happen <laughs> and it doesn't mean the pain and the hangover effects of that terrorism and violence um, doesn't still exist today i'm a big believer of we have to confront the things that that scare us to make sure that they don't repeat so you know i mean i'm going to tulsa oklahoma in a couple of weeks because they're doing exhumations from the black wall street massacre that happened 100 years ago it still has an impact. Those families are, they're still survivors. <laughs> there are people, there are three people who survived this massacre as children who are still alive. So even though it was 100 years ago, there are still living survivors of this. And even if there weren't, these people's stories deserve to be told. These victims deserve to be buried with dignity. And us pretending this didn't happen doesn't make it not happen. You know what I mean? It's still there. It's still real. <laughs> it still has an impact. That was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> that was great. It made me think of like nine different things. But the key one that I'll include there is, I forgot to mention I'm Armenian, Persian Armenian, so my background has some uh, entertaining stories and whatnot from 100 years ago or whatnot. And it's still relevant to that community in the same way that for Tulsa, Oklahoma, that yeah. was relevant to that community. It's still there. Also, I had a bunch of TikTok fans from near Tulsa, Oklahoma. So oh, that's cool. cool. Yeah. Like some of my videos. Yeah, no, the Armenian genocide, that is intergenerational trauma is a thing <laughs> you know that led to a massive dysphoria you know like there's so many effects from these things that happen in the past like you can say it's a hundred years ago get over it but like okay that what does that even mean what does that even mean <laughs> all of this leaves a mark you know and it will be felt for a very very long time dr nicole Ituriaga, hopefully back on in the future in the current moment i would like to say Thank you for coming on this discussion, describing a bit from Exhuming Violent Histories, your wonderful book, sharing this moment with us, and joining on the show. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful to talk to you. Very glad to. And we are out. <laughs> <laughs>